0: Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips, while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back and Check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education. And our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interviewed to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in founder plus so guys please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews that's it from me i hope you enjoy this episode now let's jump in
1: what you need is thirst you need to be a thirsty
0: human who is intent on learning it's
1: a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential Now. 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 now
2: the founder podcast even the greatest entrepreneurs had help
0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast, Nathan Chan here. Today we're speaking with Chris Savage and Brendan Schwartz, who are the co-founders of Wistia. This interview is absolutely incredible, you do not want to miss it. I'm going to speak with them about the real journey of entrepreneurship, the ups, the downs, the pressures of why you have to get revenue, 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 you've got to keep growing, you've got to keep growing, but then you're making no money. And what do you do when that's not working? The real story of entrepreneurship, what it takes to build and grow a successful online software company. This was an incredible interview. I'm really excited to share this with you. Please welcome to the podcast, Chris Savage and Brendan Schwartz. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how'd you get your job, A.K. how'd you guys find yourself doing the work that you're doing today?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, well, we made them. So that's the fun part of entrepreneurship. <laughs> you get to make it up. Um, but Brendan and I started Wistia in 2006. And uh, we'd already known each other for a few years. We met in, in college and lived in the same freshman hall. We were friends. And um, when we decided that we wanted to go after this market, which is video, and saw all these changes and all these things happening, it literally was as simple as like, hey, should Brendan, should we do this? He's like, yep. I quit my job. I'm like, oh crap, I guess we're doing this. Uh, and, you know, the beginning, it was easy to create the job at the beginning. And the hard part's been scaling it. That was always funny hearing that from your perspective, because I
2: don't, I it, it, the, the calculus, and I feel like we were thankful to start at a young age, was, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to learn a lot. Yeah. we were, yeah, 23, 20, 24. Um, And it's funny to hear, yeah, because I feel like I didn't have that much to lose. I was working at a software company uh, in Boston and I feel like once we really like, like, we're going to do this, I put in, you know, notice and uh, then called Chris and then we're like, all right, here we go. Yep.
0: There you go. And uh, can you tell us about uh, a story of your school days at Brown that made you guys realize you'd be great co-founders?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny when you say that, um... I think about in college, Brendan had this website he was working on. And it was, it was called Voxis. And it was like a blogging platform. Before there were blogging platforms, it was like Brendan made this thing by himself. He designed every icon. He was just toiling and working on this thing for so long. But as his friend, watching him do this, I was like really rooting for him. And it seemed very clear that you know, there was no rule book. There was no, there was nothing that like told you how to do it. And he did it. And I remember we were so pumped about it. Everyone was really excited about it. And we had a big party to celebrate. with this like launch party for um, this like blogging platform. And you'd think this story would be, and then everyone used the blogging platform and it grew. It was like, no, no one else is allowed to use it. It was, <laughs> it was just like a very small number of us who were able to use this thing. But watching Brendan solve that problem, working with him on it a little bit from the side and like, just like, then we ended up doing, I did film and video at Brown. And so I made a lot of, a lot of short films and Brendan helped me with a bunch of them. was involved in them. And it was just clear that we were like, we could collaborate, but like he was someone who could build anything. And so when we, when we decided to start this in the first place with no experience and like no real plan, I was very confident. That at least he could do it. I wasn't sure I could do anything, but I thought Brendan would at least
2: be fine. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say Yeah. That. I feel like just to get sentimental for a second, too. Uh I feel like there were we we were like thankful to have like a lot of like really close friends in college. But it was definitely uh it was junior year where a lot of friends went abroad. Yeah. Study abroad. And then Chris and I were like of the friend group, the two people who were left. And then we got a lot closer that year. And I feel like what has remained was like true in college and has remained the case through Building Wisty and all the ups and downs we have is like this is this is like a weird, weird place to get to in this podcast. So I feel like you if I am like really struggling or are, like you are always there to cheer me up, like it is very helpful. I could not do this alone. People who do this without a co-founder, it is very perplexing to yeah. me like it's really really hard there's it's really challenging to run and build a business and it's hard to be you know 20 years old in college and trying to figure yourself out and to like have a friend who can like help you know buoy you and balance you when you're like not feeling great and not doing the best is is really
1: yeah that's become it like i think like you know there's a moment people say when you start a business like you shouldn't start with friends like that's pretty common advice because a lot of people lose their friends right when they start a business I think for us, like if we hadn't been good friends going into it and providing and like really saying like, we want to continue to be good friends and actually prioritizing that probably we wouldn't be in business. Like we would have sold because there are so many times that things get really hard and actually having a great friend there to work, work through it or basically just be like, man, this shit sucks. Like this is terrible, right? Like, yeah, this is terrible. And then you're laughing about it. Like, well, what should we do? Like, I don't know. I guess we figured out everything else. We'll figure this out too. It's like, that backbone relationship is actually really important. Um, and I think it also just imbued the business and the culture with this idea that like, it should actually be fun. Like the work itself should be fun. You don't have to do a bunch of crazy stuff to make it fun. Like if you, if the work itself, the problem solving and the building is fun, then you could be really persistent. You could have a lasting friendship, but you can also have like a lasting company. And I think that's just like, one of the things that came out of that? That's still so true. It's crazy
0: yeah you you make an interesting point about the around the friend's piece right like if you did want to get into business with a friend what are what are the what are the ingredients you think you need for for that to work
1: yeah
2: Go. I think what one thing we have found which is is like what what you were saying before is there's a there's like this uh thing in business that people say is you know oh it's just business, it's not personal, and I find that to be very like that's like the farthest thing from the truth, especially if you have relation, right? You're working closely with someone, a business partner, you should care about them. Like we're all human. And and one thing that's worked for us is like putting your friendship ahead of the business. That sounds the opposite of what you should do. Um, but that has really worked for us. Like if we encounter something, hard, you know, something challenging, every relationship has its challenges and say so, like, we're committed to solving that. Because I feel like when you have that in reverse you like are prioritizing the business, but what you're really doing is letting your relationship suffer and you're not going to be, if you're a business partner, you're not going to be able to build a strong business if you have problems
1: in your relationship. There's also, there's like, I'm actually very recently, like maybe three months ago, someone who knows us really well and works at Wistia was like, do you guys don't do reviews for each other? Do you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> what? No, of course we do. They're like, you do? I'm like, oh man, you should see the reviews we do for each other. Like, we let it rip. We let it all rip. And I think that that's one of the parts of like, if you're going to go into business with a friend, you got to to keep the friendship. You can't lie to each other. Like you got to be honest. You got to say the truth about what's working and what's not working. And not everybody can handle that. Turns out if you can handle that, things turn out better at work because like you're actually improving and getting better and your friendship stays intact. And I think that's something um that's been like a good example, so it's been really good for us. We've also been tried to be really clear about ownership and from the very beginning, like, all right, Brendan, you're gonna own building the product and like what that is and I'm gonna own how we get this to market. And then ownership changes and shifts and evolves, but we're always trying to be really clear about like, hey, what are the things that we each own individually? And then actually we're also, we have a board, it's us and one other person. What is the, What are the things that we own as like board members? that's important. And that's actually a different thing, but just be by being really crystal clear, it makes it much easier to figure out who's doing what, how the interplays work, when you should, you know, I know what I'm going to trust Brendan on things and he's, his votes going to matter the most. So when mine matters the most, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I think, um, from personal reflection as well, going to business with, with friends, uh, I've, I've seen a situation where it didn't work, but then also I've seen situations where it has, I think the upbringing coming from a similar upbringing or background is really key as well. Um, What's your take there?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think, yeah, I have never, we've never really talked about this, but like we both kind of came from, you know, we both have dads who are engineers, you know, like I think like. (laughs) That's true. Who were like tinkering and like building things. And like, I mean, my dad certainly was like an early adopter. I think your dad is too. Is yeah, I think yeah we had pretty you know different in some
2: respects, but probably more similar than different. Did a lot of the same things in middle school and high school. Yeah, a lot of the same interests. Um,
1: Yeah, I think yeah pretty shared value system. I think it's also yeah the value system is interesting because like when you start a company, like just like a relationship, I think you don't even you don't know what you're going to face. Obviously, you don't know what challenges you're going to have, and so part of the nice thing about having worked together for a long time and also especially in our 20s we're figuring out our values it's like we figured them out together. like we faced really hard decisions like what should we do in this case and back and forth and back and forth and you make a decision and see how it works. and then you see how you feel about the decision and this like constant open reflection I think has made it like so we are we're so aligned on how to build the company. It's like I know what Brendan's gonna say and he knows what I'm gonna say, which makes it a lot easier. Um, I think to make a lot of decisions that come up.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so when you guys did start building the company, what was the problem that you were trying to solve with Wistia at the beginning and how has that changed over time?
1: Yeah, I can, I can take this to start. Um, so we just saw that online video was dramatically changing. Uh, you know, this is in like late 2005, um, I was on YouTube, which, which had just launched very early. And it was really interesting to see YouTube because, like, at that time, it was a lot of, like, pirated content. It was a lot of, like, you know... SNL clips. SNL yeah. clips. I think of it as, like, America's Funniest Home Video stuff. Just dumb stuff, you know. Uh, but if anyone could upload it, it would work. And this was really interesting because I had done film and video in school. I'd made short films. And I had tried to be a part of these, like, online filmmaking communities where everyone supposedly can make stuff and they weren't that vibrant. Like there wasn't that much content going on to them. And they also were, it was really confusing technically how to make online video work pre-YouTube. It was like, do you use real player? Do you use QuickTime? There's all these different formats. You had to encode things yourself and YouTube just took care of all of it. And so we were talking a lot about that, paying a lot of attention to it. And eventually realized that youtube was using open source tools to do all the encoding of the video so like what that meant is like you could have a hundred different formats and someone would be like oh my format isn't yet like supported that open source thing and they would add it in they would support it and now you could upload anything and turn it back into something that everyone could see and so that seemed like the spark of a huge change And that's what initially got us like really excited was like, this is going to be a giant new market. Online video is finally going to be here. Um, We thought this would happen very rapidly, which is like, especially like it took us like about a year to focus on helping businesses specifically. And we thought like 2009, like 2010, this would just take off. And of course we were very wrong on the timing, uh, but right about that, that shift happening.
0: When did you guys first raise money? Because you ended up buying your investors out uh, in 2017, can you talk us through that journey as well and how you came to that decision? Yeah,
2: yeah. We we were we were pretty focused. The the, the short like arc in the beginning, uh, Chris alluded to, is we we originally built something for artists, portfolio website for artists. Uh, despite our friends and family saying, "I thought you were starting a business," you realize artists don't have a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be hard to make that work. So that was our kind of lost in the woods before we. <laughs> settled on building what was effectively a private video sharing service for businesses. And then that, that little journey, I feel like we learned a lot in that. And I remember when we start, when we did that pivot, we went like to the opposite extreme. We said, if we're going to talk to businesses, we're going to sell in person to them um, and do do like old school, like face-to-face sales. So what that resulted in is we had some early success. We basically got to the place where we were profitable you know, barely profitable,
1: right? I really like, about two years.
2: Yeah, able to pay for, you know, rent and food living in uh, like a 10-person house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But we were effectively in that default alive state, right? That, you know, f- folks tried to get to. And at that point, we still saw this this vision for expanding the company and building it much bigger. And we had started to network and we met two other folks um, who were a lot older than us and more experienced who weren't living in a 10 person commune, you know, they had families. (laughs) Yeah. They had expenses. (laughs) Actual expenses. They required salaries. And that's when we started to learn about fundraising and angel investing. And we said, okay, we were kind of like doing this calculus, you know, do we continue on and, and slowly build it or, or do we raise some money so we can hire these two other folks to help accelerate what we're doing? So we ended up raising
1: around angel funding, um, I mean, it's like a paltry amount of money nowadays. It's like 775000 And that was in 2008. So almost two years exactly from when we started. And then it was four of us for another two years. So we raised the money. And the plan was, remember, we had this like forecast. We're like, By the end of the year, we're going to have 10 people. All this stuff is happening. And it, this is also 2008. was not a good time for the market. Generally, it was a little bit of a like, uh-oh, like, the market's turning. If you remember, the, yeah, the financial crisis. Ah, uh, um, great time. The great financial crisis, yes. And so we decided to stay small and just try to figure it out, like figure out what the price should be and how we should market ourselves and how we should sell and all this kind of stuff. And just as we were running out of money from that round, things started to connect. So we started to like, really, we got the the business model right. We'd flip things to being self-service. Um, so people were coming to the website and signing up. They're signing up consistently um and we're like wow like we're running out of money this is bad but good news is look at that graph like the customer numbers really starting to go we should go tell our investors they'll be pumped and we went back to them they're like hey guys bad news like we're running out of money like we're screwed but look at this look at this great thing and they're like that is great that's real. that that's fantastic we'll we'll basically they gave us money so quickly it took like two days yeah but
2: also didn't, but we were like, this is the last money. We promised yes. the last money we're going to need. And they were like, they didn't believe that.
1: Absolutely not. They're like, no way. But at this point, you know, everything's surprising us because it's taken longer than we thought. We're four years in. We're only four people. I remember if we went to a meetup back then and someone would ask like what we did, it felt embarrassing because you're like, well, I've been at this four years. I've got like four people on the team. And like, where do you, where's your office? We've had an office like way out of the city. So it's a Is it? And oh, like, yeah, we yeah. drive out, we do a reverse a frame, commute. A frame story. Yeah. Store. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just this like funny moment. Um, but it all it all worked. Like that trend continued. We got more and more customers. It was crazy. I remember also like
2: that feeling from what we were. I feel like we were really fortunate early on to be in that place where for a moment we were like, we could do this forever because we were just profitable yes. enough. And like Chris said, we were so keyed into getting profitable. And we felt in that moment where we were losing a ton of money, like more money than we like, had ever seen in our life. We were losing I think like 40 grand a month. Yeah. With like the salaries of of these new folks and we were paying ourselves and we were so determined to get back to profitability in this like shitty office in Lexington, Massachusetts above a frame store. We put um these like graph paper on the wall. Yeah. That went all around the office with like negative 40,000 on the bottom. Yeah. And mm-hmm. zero on the top. Yeah.
1: And we were like, every sale that we had, we would go and update it. And it. Yeah. And actually, the best part was we had like a, remember after we got in that office, that was when we had the drought of sales. So we raised the money. This is a good, going a little bit back. After the first time, we raised the money. We hired these guys. We're so pumped. And we thought we were going to be like, we thought we were going to be cash flow positive like three months because we just closed these big deals. So we were just like, we we're picking out the espresso machines we we're going to buy. Once we we're cash flow positive, we were so, we were so cocky. And then we didn't, after we closed the angel round, the first one, we didn't close a deal for like three months, like not one. Yeah. So that graph was just. The graph was just line. dead, like flatlined. Yeah. And we're like, this is, this is not good. And then the first deal. Oh, that's right. That was closed. <laughs> we thought our model was basically paying what? $400 a month, I think was like the initial was math. Like few, yeah. Or like a few grand, I think. Yeah. It like yeah. sold. Yeah. Yeah. It was like $400 a month. Then we sold it with one for $1,000 a month. So we're like, it's going to be an average. So we're waiting, drought of sales. Our sales guy's like, guys, I'm so excited. I've got our first deal for us. I charge them per user. We're like, okay, like a dollar per user per month. We're like, okay, how many users is it? He's like, 12 users. You're like, you're telling us it's $12 a month? You got a customer for $12 a month? Like, he's like, yeah. Like, okay, customer 11, $12 a month. Go Brendan goes, I'll never forget. Brendan goes a sheet. And it's, you know, $40,000 to go. And he just puts this like, like yeah, 39988 like, like out there. And you're like, fuck. Uh, and, but the cool thing was that like, eventually like that ended up being true that we need customers to come in at $50 a month, $25 a month, $100. And that actually was what caused us like breakthrough on the customer number thing. Um and because we were not going to tell you the entire history of Wistia, but I can jump to why we did the buyback if that's helpful.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear. So, so yeah. you did the angel rounds a couple of times.
1: Yeah, we did a couple angel rounds, and I'll I'll go fast. We we scaled and like faster than we would have thought. We got to like ten million in revenue with three million in EBITDA, and we're feeling pretty good at this point. Obviously, we're like, man, we're we're great at this. This is awesome. Um, but we started to get a lot of advice. From other entrepreneurs, investors, and everyone who looked at what we were doing, was like, "Hey, you guys, like, you shouldn't be profitable. It's bad to be profitable. Like, you're growing like this. Like, you should be, you should be investing all of that profit into growth. You should be growing faster." And you know, the first time you hear it, you brush it off. But like every everyone we talked to, we heard the same advice over and over and over. And so it, like, we eventually decided that we were wrong. And we shouldn't be that profitable. I think like, you know, imposter syndrome and all these things like affecting us. And so we decided to push really hard to grow. And we basically greenlit every new project that came up um, and hired tons of people to do that. And so suddenly, you know, it's funny. Like when I told people externally, we're four people. I was kind of embarrassed. Now you go to something, you talk to them like, what's happening? Like, you won't believe it. We just grew from 30 people to 50. They're like, oh my God, you must be crushed. You're like, yeah, we've got this conference. We've got this other got agency yeah. We've way. got billboards. They're like, oh, you guys are on fire. I'm fire. like, I know we're on fire. Yeah, 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 and But the funny thing, of course, is we're doing all this stuff and it's not really changing our growth rate, like our revenue growth rate, but we are no longer profitable. We go to being break-even and then we go to losing money and- because we'd had a few years of profitability in there. We had cash in the bank. We start, the cash in the bank is coming down every month because we are just greenlighting so much stuff like trying to grow. And, uh, you know, that changes your psyche. It changes it changes how you make decisions. And without meaning to, we went from this mode where we'd been profitable and actually a lot of the best stuff we'd ever done now at this point, we did what we were profitable. Um, like really wild brand campaigns and content and moves in the product and pricing and all these things. We just were like, they felt like the right decision, especially uh, long-term. Yeah. Longer-term yes. investments.
2: We were very early in content marketing and video content marketing. And
1: that is a long-term investment, but that it was, we kept at it and yes. it really started to pay off. It was, e- was easy to do that where we're profitable. Fast forward a year, we're no longer profitable. And the Everyone starts, without saying anything, everyone just gets really short-term focused. So people are like, and, and the reason that happens is like, you would think if you were to raise money, it would allow you to be long-term focused, which is kind of how we are running. You know, you have this money in the bank, like, couldn't you just go raise more money? But what ends up, what ends up actually happening is you have, a, you have a forecast and a plan. And for us, it was like this. It was like, oh, January, we're going to lose 50000 And that's fine because we've got enough money in the bank, years of runway. February, we're gonna lose fifty thousand too. But we're actually gonna spend more in February, we're gonna have more revenue. Like incremental growth will show up. And you and you build a forecast like that that assumes you invest more to grow, you get more revenue, and 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 it keeps funding it. So your losses are kind of the same every month. What ended up happening was like we lost fifty thousand one month. And the next month revenue went up, but not as much as we expected. So we lost a hundred thousand. And then the next month, the exact same thing happened, and you're up. You're losing 150,000. And then you have another good month, but suddenly your losses start to add up. And it just, what ends up happening is everyone gets short term focused because they feel like, hey, we're behind plan. We have to adjust. We can't actually, the the cash that's in the bank will not last as long. And we never said, hey, be short term focused. Like that never once happened. Uh, But it naturally, by being in that state, everyone starts asking those questions and it changed the products we could do. And we just started doing things that were not, uh, I would say like we couldn't drive as much unique value. with.
2: It was like the frog being boiled. Yeah. Situation. Yes. You know, we, it like happened slowly. And then one day I think we both woke up and we're like, what happened? Like we were so proud of how creative we had been, how long-term focused. And then it felt like the next moment, the two of us had like sent an email to the entire company that said, Please put your ideas in this Google sheet for, uh, you know, like ways we can like hack revenue and, and jack it up in the next like 15 to 30 days. It was like the polar opposite of, you know, like what we, the business we had built and like what we stood for. Yeah. And it was like a,
1: not the, it was a low. That was a low. Of the- it was a low. And I think the other interesting thing, you know, you you started by talking to us about being friends and being honest and like. You know, these are lessons we've learned, but one of the mistakes we were making that moment is that we actually weren't telling each other how unhappy we were. And it wasn't until we had offers to sell the company. Uh, we had three offers all come suddenly is companies circle around us. Um, I'll try to make this short, but they came in and they're like, Hey, you're doing something awesome. We want you to be part of our thing. Like we want to acquire your business. And up until that point, we'd had different acquisition offers. We'd always just easily said no, but this time, we're like, oh right, yeah, let's get them in the conversation. So we got in the conversation, we start talking about what's going to happen, um, and we eventually end up with an offer to sell. And we were sitting on like a loading dock behind our office, it's like over there, um, trying to decide what we would do if we sold. Like, well, if we sell the business, we're going to stay at this new company for two years, that seems pretty clear, then we're going to leave, and... What should the two of us do? Well, we love working together. We think we have a unique partnership. We're going to start another company. Okay. What space should we do it in? A lot of opportunity in video. A lot of opportunity yeah. in video. A lot
2: of... Who should we hire? We have built and spent a decade building a great team. Look, they're all
1: over here. We're, like, yeah. look, we're sitting next to the office. Yeah. Is, yeah. And hire these people. We're going through the list and we're just like, we're going to hire these people. We're going to start. We're going to get back into video. We're going to do all these different things. And we're like, wait, what? We're just going to rebuild Wistia if we sell the company. Why do we need to rebuild it? And then I was like, are you happy? No. Am I happy? No. What happened? Oh, we got way too short-term focus. And we stopped doing the stuff that we can uniquely do. Why don't we just fix that? And we're like, yeah, we can fix this. Like, we have the business. Let's just fix it. And that meant saying no to those offers to sell. Um And the second we said no, we realized we had to do right by the team and by our investors because our investors wanted us to sell. It was like a ridiculous return for them. And that led us to this idea of raising debt and buying them out. Um, And that got us really excited because it was like, hey, if we buy them out and we raise debt, we're going to have to be profitable to serve the debt. And if we're profitable, we long-term focus, we'll do all the stuff that we can uniquely do take the unique risks that we think we're good at taking and actually maybe the business will be off. and so that's what we did in 2017 is we raised 17.3 million um to buy them out and to get liquidity for our early team and they had the option to sell their options at that point um and then the, the you know fortunately it's a happy end to the story which is that once we did that we got way more focused. we took a lot of the risks that only we felt like we could take And it worked. We got really long-term focused and it caused revenue to accelerate, huge swing in profitability. um, And recently, we just paid off that debt. So it's been like a pretty amazing thing to realize and, and to do.
0: Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear From some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. a lot about the difference between being short-term focused and long-term focused, but what did that truly look like? Like, can you give us some examples of some of the things that you guys did strategically when you made that shift? Because I try to put myself in your guys' shoes, and you're losing money, then you're going to take on a ton of debt to pay out your existing investors and early team. Um, that would that really that really loaded the stakes, and that would be pretty stressful. Uh, because you're like, okay, well, I've got this incredible business, and I can probably have a life changing exit. Now I'm basically going to go backwards in my mind, and go make it really hard for myself. And if this doesn't work, then we're in serious trouble. So, what, like, what did you do strategically? Can you kind of talk us through some of that? And and you know, how long did it take to turn the company back around?
2: Yeah, I mean, the I just found the psychology piece the honest answer there was it was once we decided that we that we were like really clear that we didn't want to sell and that we saw this path to basically getting back to what felt like was really working for us before this longer term creative focus it was like a very like freeing and expansive feeling like it felt like we were in control again if that makes sense this is like abstract and then what we what we actually did was One thing is we, we brought the team along on the journey. So even before we knew we were going to raise debt, we, we said, we're just going to be open and transparent about this and that we had these offers to sell the business. We, we declined them for this reason. This is what we want to do. It's created a ton of turbulence, as you can imagine, like a lot of uncertainty and turbulence inside the company. We figured out that was maybe in the summer mm-hmm. that we said that mm-hmm. we kind of struck on this debt. We we got that deal done in I think November mm-hmm. of 2017. Yeah, and then we start. We had always run the business open book, um, but it was this very funny shift for the whole team where you know we, if we talk about revenue or something like that uh, before to the team, it just like wasn't that much interest or like engagement or connection. And once. We had like really explained like why we were raising the debt, how this is going to work, what the future of the company looked like, where we wanted to take it. There was this huge amount of engagement from everyone in the finances and operations of the business. I remember there was like this like almost like knife edge switch where we we do these monthly all hands meetings, and after we had done this debt deal, um, our head of finance was going through, you know, the the same thing that she does every month, right? goes through the finances. And like, she's like, any questions? And normally people would just be like scrolling on their phones or like bored or whatever. And like hand pops up, like another hand pops up. You're like, how much does the ski trip cost? Like, how much do these snacks in the office cost? Like, why do we have two offices? Like, why do we have two offices? How much does that office cost? Like, and then just all of this, like the team got very engaged with how the business was was running. So there was one thing that was like fairly easy to do, which is if you've got people focused and motivated, um, on how the business is running, we just got a lot more efficient and lean. And so a lot of that looked like, um, I remember the infrastructure team, they were like, huh, well, there's a lot of ways that like, we're not really running this efficiently. Like we could probably save a lot of money if we, you know, changed maybe how we're storing some of these videos and using like different, you know, tiering systems in S3, for instance. And like when you're growing quickly, like you just don't care about that and it doesn't matter. But if you're, trying to run like a tight ship that matters more. And so they went up and were like, hey, we say, you know, we saved a hundred grand a month because we're doing this and they get a standing ovation. Because like the business, like if people understand there's an existential threat if we can't perform and become profitable. And also we we forgot to mention too, when we did when we did the shift and we bought out, when employees sold their stock options, we create a profit sharing model. Right. So employees' incentives were aligned to ours that if we get to the business to profitability then they share in in those
1: results. And we also had to stop doing stuff. I think that's like so one big lesson for us is that we all underestimate focus and alignment. Like focus on the right problems and there might even be 10 problems that are the right problems to solve, but it turns out often if you go if you get everyone focused on 3 instead, you make a lot more progress. And then on alignment, you know, the truth is after we did the buyback, like we were so pumped and you talk about that existential kind of like stress or dread the way we looked at it was like, well, we took on this risk. If it doesn't work, we're going to have to sell the company I <laughs> guess, like um, because of the to serve the the debt. And we just had an opportunity to sell. We turned it down to so the, the two people who are going to be the most impacted by this will be us. And we're kind of OK with that. Like that was a risk that we felt actually comfortable taking. It didn't feel like we were risking everyone's like net worth. It was only our own. Um, but in any case, I say that because we made the call, we tell the company we're feeling so good. It's like literally like one of those, like you high five after the meeting and you get out there. And then basically, I'm not going to say complete chaos ensued, but a lot of people got, were very confused. They're like, well, I don't want to, I mean, I, I don't want to be here now. Like I got to pay out. Like this isn't for me or I don't want to be a tech company that's profitable. Like, aren't you supposed to do the other thing? And, and there was this like moment in time when a lot of people left. But then we hired a lot of people who, what they wanted was exactly what we were doing. And so the shift was dramatic. It was like maybe six months of kind of stressful times before suddenly everyone who was at Wistia wanted to be here. Everyone knew why we were doing what we were doing. People were joining Wistia because they said, I want to see what a real business is like where you make money. Like that's, I've never done that in my career in tech. And it was funny, it got easier to hire suddenly. Um, And the results of all of this was that we had a huge swing in EBITDA. So in 2017, uh, we were on track for negative 3 million in EBITDA. And in 2018, we had positive 6. So like a $9 million swing in like less than 12 months. And that was just like focus, um, alignment, and just it was execution again. And the cool thing about that was that is also when we greenlit some wild creative things. We we greenlit um, a big marketing project, which was uh, we gave a production agency $111,000 and asked them to make three ads for us. One ad with a $1,000 budget, one ad with a $10,000 budget, one ad with a $100,000 budget. And then we documented their creative process and the link between (laughs) money and creativity. We made a feature-like documentary that was greenlit at that exact moment once we were profitable because we're like, hey, we can do this. We believe it. it'll be sweet. It's not going to give us a return tomorrow. It's not going to get us a return next month, but we don't think anyone else is going to do it. So like, it'll probably stand out. It'll probably work. And it worked unbelievably well. Um, but that was one of those things. was like a little specific example that I don't think we could have done in the mode before. Yeah, I think the, the short answer to that question that we probably should have given at the
2: start was the the playbook that we had in our mind was, we know we can get this business profitable if we operate well and like really focus. And then once we get profitable, that profitability gives us confidence that we can do projects like that one with the like 110, 100, this creative project that we know is gonna pay a lot of dividends, but it's a much longer term investment. And we have to be profitable, like for this type of business and the way we like to run a business in order to make those long-term bets. And so we got profitable, and then we greenlit projects like that, and then we got more profit. And then that worked, and we got more profitable, yeah. and started growing the business faster.
0: Yeah, that, that's a you guys. You guys have some crazy stories, and you know I think that one that you tell is is very common amongst founders, right? I think you for whatever reason, especially when it's your first business, you just feel this this pressure amongst others. I don't know why that if you're not growing, then it's not good. And if you're not, if you're not got this crazy growth and like, you're not hiring like crazy and all these different things, then it's not good. So you just keep, you want to keep building that momentum and it gets harder and harder and harder. And then, you know, things, things change. Right. And then did you guys go through the whole piece of, you know, bringing on execs and, Fancy execs and stuff like that, and not working out.
1: We mean that that mistake, <laughs> <laughs> that whole that whole thing. Uh, yeah. The, the short version of that, I th- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, we've definitely you know hired a lot of different people for senior roles, and it's it's it turns out like today I would say is like we have the strongest senior management team we've ever had. Highly cohesive, enormous amounts of trust in the room. Everyone knows what they're doing they make quick decisions, they look for creative solutions to things like it's what it's supposed to be. But the road to this has been really tough. And it's really easy to get it wrong. Um, and in many times, we hired people who were great people, they were just like for a company way bigger than us, or for, um, you know, to opinion, we were, we were so excited to change something about the business, we hired someone super different. And then, of course, like, that didn't actually make sense with what we were trying to do. And it's, it's a very, very hard thing to get right. Yeah. I think we, that
2: mistake we've made a few times and I, I'm, I think we've learned our lesson finally after a few times through is this, yeah, people who are much more experienced, um, kind of this like old adage of like what, what got you here won't get you there, which is true in some ways and, and not true, like any advice, right? It's true in some ways and not true in other ways. And at times where we really felt like that and that we needed to change, like Chris is saying, we, overreached, hired someone who it was like uncomfortable feeling in a way that we're like, oh, we thought this is like how we should push ourselves or yeah, somebody who, you know, or or you do the thing where you think is somebody who's really confident and has all those answers for you. And you want to believe that's going to help change. It's never, it's never that simple. And the best, I feel like the best folks we've hired, they're somewhere between there. They have experience that you don't have, that we don't have. But there's also enough of kind of shared experience or grounding in what we're doing that they can pull us forward, but they're connected to the team and and what we're doing. The ones that haven't worked, it's like
1: really like out, you know, outside. Yeah. There's this like this adage from uh, Peter Chernin, who worked really closely with like Barry Diller, which is like, you can't hire a world-class team. You have to build it. And their thinking, which I agree with, is like, if someone is truly world-class, if someone is like a hundred times better than somebody else, which I think exists in this world, if you get the fit between the person and the company, right, it's almost impossible to hire that person away because the organization they're in knows that they're world-class. And so you might be able to hire people around that person. It's very hard to hire that person. And then if they are leaving, they do it on their own terms and often do their own thing. And so it's, it's just really, really hard to get people who are truly 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 world-class it's not impossible you can do it it's happened i've seen it happen but it's it's very very hard so what you want to do is you want to grow the talent you have to figure out how to grow the talent as much as possible and i think one thing we've seen is like we've hired execs who are incredible but there's something about we're doing that they're growing into there's something about it that's like very different and that causes them to show up in like um a different way than someone who just thinks it's old hat Like if someone thinks they've done it before, it's, it's hard to be as committed. It's hard to, it's hard to get all the way there. And so I I think that's one you want to think about is like, how do you grow people as much as possible um, and take those types of risks? And another thing we talk about is like the people who really are at the next level of like, I think this is true in almost any role, but especially like senior managers, like they need to be able to be like a world-class manager. Or leader, and they need to be able to be a world class IC, like individual contributor. And the wha- the problems we run into is sometimes you get someone incredible IC and they don't want to manage, and they don't like that part of it, the people part, which is an enormous part. Or you have people who that people love the people part and they seem really good, but they can't actually get into the weeds with somebody and help them solve a problem like on the ground that's coming up, or lead in that moment. And when but when someone can do both, that's when like magic happens.
2: Yeah. We've, we've hired a lot of, yeah, like people who are good at general management, but haven't been really engaged or really great at the function. And that
0: has, has not worked for us. That makes sense. Um, thank you for sharing. So love to talk about video marketing and then uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, but, uh, where do you guys see the state of video marketing right now in 2023?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that what's happening today is Video has gone from a nice to have to an expectation and 2020 really changed things because I think that was the year that people really started to see their computer as a camera. And so what are the implications of that? Um, The implications are, you know, when we consume content every day, we have infinite content to compete with. Uh, Video is everywhere. I can open up TikTok, Instagram, I can open up YouTube and like, there's a lot of people making great content on all these channels. and I'm used to believing that that's I can learn about anything, I can discover anything, I can see that. Um, and there'll be good videos there for me. And so that's what's happened to the B2 C side. and on the B2B side, everyone's trying to grapple with this change, which means like putting more of your people on camera. Um, seeing your computer as a camera is a really big deal because it means that you know we see people now who are hired into roles. That have never made a video before, and you know, if you're hired as a product marketer, don't be surprised if someone asks you, "Hey, I'd like you to make the launch video of this new product." That's a crazy thing to say uh, five years ago, and it's not anymore. And not everyone is there yet, but that—that that is the Gulf and the Delta of what we see is like today. Like, there's still, of course, you're going to make. We're, we have incredibly professional setups, both you do and we do, right now. There's a reason we're doing that. We're elevating things. We're showing people that this is important. We have help. We didn't just make this up. And there's a and production quality matters. It really does. Um, but there's also you can get a much higher production quality yourself as a creator today. And when that shows up at work, it means for us, like we've we've changed so much about our business since 2020 because of this. Um, really trying to enable people to make videos that are great themselves. And I think that's the kind of the beginning of the trend that we see today for, for video marketing and B2B. Which is just to come full circle. It is funny that we're sitting here in
2: 2023 saying that because we honestly believed in 2006, like when we saw YouTube and like how fast this chain was going from where we started, like every business, every person in every business is going to be making video, you know, definitely by the end of the decade in 2010. And, uh, again, it's just think right. We've been right about where things have been headed and extremely wrong about the timing, but it is, it's really exciting to see the arc, um, of that play out.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, um, just even reflecting in, in my own journey with founder, you know, we started with like a digital magazine. I used to do the interviews via an audio just podcast, but then as the business grew and I just saw. Especially with Instagram, when it, they started to introduce video, just the importance of how video was going to change the game. And it was only for us, like 2016, 2017, where we could actually really start to, to develop that and, like, hire a videographer. And now, you know, a lot of companies, they they hire videographers, right? Like, and you, you just need that, like, and just constantly shooting. And then as time has gone on, we've created more and more and more and more and more and more, and more video and we need to create more. Like it's never enough, right? That's 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 the thing. But yeah, it really has shifted, and I think the social platforms, not just YouTube, but these other social sharing platforms, have really been the big mover for that. And, and then also the capability of of your phone, right? The quality of content that you can put out. So I'm curious when it comes to I guess businesses looking to use video. From a marketing perspective, what data is the most valuable to review? You know, in your guys' case, when it when it comes to performance,
1: that's a good question. I I think you need to look at whatever the marketing channel is, and then see how video helps you in that channel. So, like for example, you know, if you add video to a landing page for so let's say some like ads you're putting in search um you're going to want to look at the engagement of the video of course you're going to look at where people are dropping off you're going to want to look at the specific people who are watching and you know tie that into the other data conversion data you have your list and your market automation whatever it needs to be to help you understand what's really working but ultimately you care about like how many great customers came through that channel signed up for the um Signed up for whatever was on the landing page right like that that is the, the the thing you want to pay the most attention to and there's a lot of different video metrics that are going to help you get a better view that you need to look at um, and you can benchmark and see if they're off you know but it's play rate it's engagement and retention of the video it's the individual um, heat maps and how those people flow through and take other actions but it's a step in the it's a step in the funnel versus like the just the whole thing. Unless it is it is the whole thing and we're talking about the content itself. Um, and then you're going to look at like, you know, a video podcast, um, let's say that's on your site and also on other channels. You're going to look at all the social stuff. How's it performing on YouTube? How's it performing in other places? How's it benchmarked against other podcasts? Um, and on your site, you should look at engagement and ultimately you should tie it into um, conversion.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd love to switch gears as well. Um, When it comes to uh, your award-winning series, 110-100, you guys explored the relationship between creativity and money. Um, Can you talk about it just like from the other side, like actually creating the content or creating video to drive demand? How did that work out for you guys? And what was the performance there with that series? it's a good question. I probably should have answered the last one with this one, because it's,
1: we looked at a bunch of different pieces. So we had the documentary itself, which is about an hour and 40 minutes long. And, um, we had tens of thousands of views of that just on our website. And so we looked at the engagement of those videos compared to, um, long form content. And we can, you can see it in the data. We share, uh, state a video report every year at Wistia so you can take a look at like how's your engagement stack up and stuff. And it was extremely good. But then we looked at time spent with the brand through that project. And this was the one that before that, we really didn't understand how important it was. Um, but can I spl- explain that metric? Yeah, basically it's just like... Yeah, so it's really just looking at like when people click play, how much time are they spending with 110, 100, like hours long? What's the total hour spent with that content and the
2: idea, yeah, plays times engage average engagement rate yes. gives you the total hours every viewers you know collectively spent watching this content.
1: And so the interesting and the reason why I say it, we had tens of thousands of views on the site, but the uh, time spent with brand was really high. And um, what ended up happening was we saw as that was that spiked, we ended up seeing a spike and a huge increase. Really, It wasn't a spike; it maintained a huge increase in direct traffic to the website and a huge increase in uh, branded search for Wistia. And then we saw way more (laughs) signups. We saw a bunch of customers, like a lot of customers. And we went back and looked at the full time spent with the brand in the previous year. Like across this, when we say that, I'm saying like every single page people went on that previous year uh, on the site, like time on site, time watching content, everything at 110, 100 in like the first month and a half had more time spent with the brand than all of the marketing we had done in the previous year. And so that was crazy. And even now looking back, it's generated so many customers. It's unbelievable. It's like, it's so many customers came in through that thing, which is so interesting because it doesn't say what Wistia is. It doesn't explain what a video marketing platform is. It's just our opinion and an approach and kind of a mission behind it but there was other elements of it that we also looked at which were we made a trailer and the trailer was seen millions and millions and millions of times so for a lot of people they saw the wistia brand and like the wistia brand made a documentary about this and um well so it was on Amazon like so the documentary was on Amazon uh, on Amazon prime um and then one all the words all the other stuff but it started with this like foundational video engagement data and the play rate and the time spent the brand and then over time we saw all the other things come to fruition where it became so obvious it was like such a good thing to do.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Thank you for sharing that story. because um, it's it's really it's really interesting to hear oftentimes when you create content you want to have this extreme immediate direct response and especially in the early stage startup, you know, kind of way or, or kind of error, um, you don't really think about how, what, what can you do from a brand building perspective or look, you know, you've got to have a CTA, you've got to have the branding in there. But obviously, from what I'm hearing, people enjoyed the content so much, you didn't go hard on the whist of your push that people just naturally go, I want to learn more about the company and behind who it is that have created this awesome series. And then that obviously built a lot of trust and goodwill as well in the marketplace that allowed you guys to get that outcome. But it's once you, once, like you guys talked about, a longer term play, not this immediate, quick sugar hit. Yeah.
1: It was a conscious decision to have it be on the website too, because the thinking was we need the main place to be on the website. That's not going to get as much like natural distribution, but it will mean that if you came and you watch this whole thing, you're going to be like, what else do they do? Like you're going to, you're already going to be there navigating around. And so I think that was like another piece of the puzzle that really, at least for in our case, worked like really well. Yeah. But you, you just described the content marketing playbook really
2: well, which is the, that is the way it's done. It is not an immediate payback. You need to be helpful. You need to be entertaining. You need to provide value and you do that consistently over time. And that's how you build like a following and an engine. Like, I mean, everyone is smart, right? The audience is smart. It's not, if you have something that you're, like, it's some transactional thing or you're trying to, you know, trick someone into clicking some CTA and signing up, people don't do that. The content you consume, the content we consume, it's things that are entertaining or really helpful. And if you focus on the audience and that, then like we were, you know, fortunate to learn that lesson early in the business we've been doing it for many years when we when we greenlit 110 100, so we kind of we had applied the same yeah. approach to that this is like what we wanted to watch it's like content that didn't exist that we would have been really psyched to see and we would have watched the whole thing
0: yeah awesome um so we have to work towards wrapping up we got the hot seat round quick rapid fire questions and answers guys what's your fellow co-founder spirit animal and why
1: um flat coat retriever. He's always there. Uh, he loves the water. He's there. Uh he takes he's yeah, there you go. Um
2: friendly shark. <laughs> uh fast swimmer. Uh, can be oh, oh deadly God. if needed. <laughs> deadly if needed. I like it. Very but, friendly shark, know, yeah. But very, you know,
0: uh, <laughs> friendly. <laughs> I have no idea. Awesome, thank you. Uh,
1: what's the last? <laughs> <Thank> la- <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank edit you. that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's
0: what's the last video you remember stopping the scroll on your phone? I just did a twenty-four hour social media cleanse. I know. I, I have a lot. That's why I was
1: like. <laughs> I think. The, I mean, the last one I really remember stopping the scroll for me was a clip from Kill Tony, which was like a. And Live and comedy, comedy podcast, comedy. and I've and it's, it's a delight. It's a delight. What daily habit makes you a better founder? Working out every day. Learning Spanish.
0: Love it. All right, last one. I'd love to hear this from both of you guys as well. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why?
2: John Carmack, legendary game developer and entrepreneur. Uh, he's just like a was like a childhood idol, right? Like, program, you know, Wolfenstein, Doom himself, which I spent many, many hours playing. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him talk, uh, but he has an uncanny ability. He, he'll give, like, hour-long keynote uh, that are completely impromptu and extremely cogent. He's just super smart, good interesting... Dinner interesting guy interested in all kinds of yeah ai game development all kinds of stuff that i'm also interested
1: um and i'm gonna go with the rock you know we don't think of him every day as an entrepreneur but that guy's oh, got is an entrepreneur a lot of businesses uh he's got a lot going on and i think it's like i'd love to i'd love to to learn from somebody who has figured out how to play in so many different arenas at the same time um and you know supposedly he's still like one of the nicest guys out there and like and um yeah I think it's interesting it would be interesting to kind of like
0: learn more about that mm, yeah that's a good one I'm a fan of the rock we also interviewed his uh ex-wife as well um fascinating businesswoman Danny Garcia she's yeah great. they work
1: together on so much of the stuff
0: yeah yeah she's fascinating so
1: I want to know your answer who would you pick
0: Elon, Elon Musk. Yeah, 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 yeah. he's my hero. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: that's a good one. I was like, should I go Elon? I was like, nah, I feel like, (laughs) hey, I'm reading the biography. So maybe that's like something, you know, but there isn't one of the rocks, so that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) There will be, there will be, yeah. You'll write it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, look, if it helps, like most people say Elon Musk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> awesome. So
1: um, would you like to have dinner with Elon Musk?
0: Yes. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, uh, thank you so much, guys, for your candidness and just like sharing how it's been, how it is, and what it takes really to build this extremely successful startup. Congratulations on all your success thus far. And uh, thank you so much for giving back to our community. This will really help them.
1: Hey, thanks for having us. This yeah. great. Thank you.
0: Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview.